30 verse 30 through 44. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We learn from Scripture that God is a hidden God. The Lord told Moses that Man cannot see God with our eyes and live. Though he reveals himself in nature, that revelation is limited. His attributes are revealed and we see the greatness and goodness of our God from the moment we wake up in the morning and we walk outside and we look around and we see the sun shining. We see his greatness His goodness, which can only condemn us. God is hidden from sinners. But the God of our salvation can be found in His special revelation. In the Old Testament, God reveals Himself and He reveals ways to describe His character So that we can understand. So that we can place our faith in Him. And so that we could recognize Him. And one of those ways that He refers to Himself is the way that He is our shepherd. We see this in the famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
And in Isaiah, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. The Lord says, as a shepherd seek out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And there are many duties that come along with being a shepherd. And there are traits that he needs to have. And one of those traits is that he is compassionate. So firstly, this is what is revealed in our Lord Jesus. At this point, the apostles returned to Jesus from their mission. Uh, They were sent out to proclaim the message that all people should repent. And they confirmed that message with the casting out of demons and healing the sick. And when they returned, they told Jesus all that they had done and taught. And Jesus, knowing that they are human sinners and that they have limitations, he shepherds them as such. He doesn't ask of them that which they cannot bear. Uh, Jesus wasn't a slave driver. So he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. See, he showed compassion to his servants and calls on them to rest away from the people by the boat, that is Peter's boat, to a desolate place by themselves to eat. Uh, See, the desolate place is another way of describing a wilderness, a place where there is nothing Uh, So they had to pack food for their journey. And it is in the wilderness that God often meets with his people. But before they even get there, many people saw them going and recognized who they were. Jesus had given his disciples authority to minister in his name. So his name had been multiplied by 12, which means his popularity at this point had been multiplied. They recognized Jesus and his disciples and they uh, ran along the coast by foot toward the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the people were coming from all the towns and they got to the destination before Jesus as he and his disciples had docked. So picture uh, a crowd at the shore awaiting them as if they were some famous rock band, the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Pick a band that you like. They didn't get a chance to rest and eat yet. If this were anyone else, if this were you or me, we would be pretty frustrated. Think of how you act when you're hungry. You would be pretty frustrated. But Jesus wasn't frustrated with the crowd. He he wasn't angry. He wasn't annoyed. Because when he went ashore, he saw them standing there and, he, and it says he had compassion on them. That is from a place of love and pity. Why? Because he noticed their state. He noticed how they were and the direction they were heading in. They were in confusion and lost in sin. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
If you've ever seen a, a flock of sheep, uh, they depend on their shepherd to guide them. They are not that smart. And if they are left to themselves, they can go off into many different dangerous directions. Uh, I almost ran over some in Potsdam once. And after I passed them, what did they do? They scurried right back into the middle of the road. Like they didn't learn their lesson. Being in the middle of the road will get you hit by a car. And a shepherd must have compassion to tend his flock because sheep are needy and helpless on their own. If they fall on their backs, say in a ditch, they can't pick themselves back up. They need the shepherd to lift them up. If left to themselves, they may even fall off a cliff. They are needy. And he notices, notices this, especially since their leadership in those days, both politically and religiously, had failed them. In the Old Testament, the, the shepherd of God's people was often referred to the king of Israel, especially King David. But the king at that time, who was Herod, a false king, not really a king, uh, King Herod, he was corrupt. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were corrupt. Herod executed one of uh, the prophets of God, John the Baptist. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were binding the people with unbiblical traditions and collaborating with the Herodians to kill Jesus. So the people had no reliable guidance. Isn't this how it is in our day today? Corruption fills the ranks of leadership in every institution. But God raises up shepherds in every generation. Like when he raised up King David to replace Saul. He raised up Joshua as the successor of Moses. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's where Mark gets this quote from because Jesus is the true and final successor of all the old shepherds of Israel, including Moses, Joshua, and David. Actually, this verse is quoted throughout the Old Testament, and on every occasion, it is referring to a shepherd who will lead Israel into military battle. So there is reason to believe that this crowd was following them because they were going to seek to make Jesus their new political and military leader, such as we find in John's account of this story, as they were about to take him by force to make him king. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Herod, Caesar, and Rome. But they didn't understand his mission they were thinking very worldly. Yes, he is a warrior king like David was. He is the true Joshua, actually they share the same name, who will lead his people on a conquest to the promised land. He is the new Moses, leading them through a new exodus. But this exodus 
isn't worldly as the prior exodus. And this will be their disappointment. His kingdom is not of this world. And this should hit us at home. It seems as if though, uh, as though many Christians today are looking for a worldly leader who uses worldly means to save us. But every worldly leader will disappoint us at some point. Because before we allow worldly shepherds to shepherd us, whoever they are, whatever voices are influencing us at the moment, we should ask, is Jesus our shepherd? Because He is the good shepherd, as God is described in the Scriptures. But the question is, how does Jesus shepherd His flock? Because His compassion is not inactive. It is not like the uh, superficial compassion of the world uh, that is just lip service. Um, Oh, that's just too bad. Right? You ever heard that? That's just too bad. And then the compassion is like a mist that disappears in the air. On to the next conversation. Nothing we can do about that. No, that's not the compassion of Jesus. He did something about it. It led him to act on it. When it says that he has compassion, he is not a distant God who just looks on from afar from his throne. He got off his throne and came down to his people. He met with his people in the wilderness And what did he do to shepherd them? What did he do? It says he began to teach them many things. Teaching is the primary role of the shepherd. Teaching is actually the primary role of under shepherds, such as pastors and elders. It's not running community events. He doesn't have to be creative in marketing strategies, though that is a good trait to have. Many churches expect pastors and elders to be quasi-mayors or community leaders. But shepherds are primarily teachers. R.C. Sproul says that teaching should take up 95% of the pastor's work. It took up a majority of Jesus' work in his earthly ministry. But the question is, are we allowing him to shepherd us in this way? Are we listening to his teaching? Are we receiving his teaching? Or do we want our ears tickled? Because this is what his compassion led him to do. He was led to illumine their minds and to reveal God to them. But secondly, notice how a shepherd also guides and provides for his sheep. It says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. They are trying to remind Jesus 
they, they were supposed to go off by themselves in the wilderness, get something to eat, and rest for a while. So the disciples tell him to send the crowd away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat since they wouldn't be able to find food in a desolate place where they were. In other words, they were saying, tell them we have our food, but there is where you can find your own. That's what you call compassion. I'm being sarcastic. But that is what any of us would have done if we had dinner plans with the Savior of the world. There is where you find food. Let us have time with Jesus alone. And part of Jesus' ministry was to raise up apostles who will see what he does hear of his teaching and do likewise. But at this point, it seems like they had been ignoring him all along. So Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii is equivalent of close to one year's salary at that time in Israel. So this was a a snarky and sarcastic response with a bit of exaggeration to say, it is impossible for us to feed all of these people. We don't have the means. But I believe even if they did, I don't think they would have fed them. See, Jesus has been trying to teach them Compassion and how to shepherd his people. But they didn't get it. Also, I I think they forgot who they were speaking to. This was the guy who calmed the storm that almost sunk the boat they were in with just his words. But like us, they quickly forget. So he reminds them and puts them to the test. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish, which wouldn't be enough to feed a family of four, never mind a crowd of people of 5,000. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. This was uh, to make it easier to pass out food. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Some say there were more because of women and children. But if they were surrounding him to make him a military leader, it could have been just men, so we're not sure of the exact number. We just know that it was a lot of people. And there is a lot going on in this passage. There is a lot going on here. First, there is the shepherd. 
This shepherd sees a crowd and has compassion on them. So he shepherds them by teaching them. But that's not all. His compassion went further. Out of his compassion, he is moved to go beyond just teaching them. He leads them as a shepherd to green grass. The green pastures as described in Psalm 23. And though they are in a desolate place, a a desolate place is not a desert, right? It, It is a place that has nothing within itself to sustain life, such as food and water, but there is still green grass to sit on. It is a wilderness where God meets with His people and His people are called to trust in Him to provide their every need. We see this repeated throughout the scripture. And here it is culminated in Jesus Christ. And since there is no means for the disciples to provide food, what did Jesus do? What was he proving? Think about it. So secondly, the shepherd, as the sheep's provider, is about to prepare a feast. They have no food. And they need to eat. You wonder why uh, the early church and uh, some of the non-Protestant churches always have a feast for something. To a certain extent, you understand why. There are feasts throughout all of scriptures. I say this because when it says they sat down, the wording is similar to the wording to recline at table. This wording suggests That this is not going to be just an average meal. But that this is a feast or a celebration. And this feast was purposely placed here to contrast with the feast that Herod threw for himself. Herod's feast was sinful. It was debauched and self-centered. Focused on Herod and his own greatness. And he only invited the elites of society But Jesus saw this crowd of common sinners, had compassion. He leads them through teaching and is about to lay out a feast for them, not for himself. He took the five loaves and two fish and divided it among them all. And get this, they had leftovers after they were already satisfied. Some people have suggested that they must have passed out little pieces of bread and fish, similar to how we partake of the bread of the Lord's Supper. And they were satisfied with the little they received to show the value of being frugal and eating little and not wasting resources or whatever. No, that is not possible. Because they had more left over than what they had when they began. It says they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the fact that they were satisfied proves that they didn't just break little pieces of bread and pass them around. This was not a hoax. This was not an optical illusion. This was not a magic trick. He didn't hide 
bread and fish under his robe, as some have suggested. He didn't have bread and fish tucked away behind some tree somewhere, uh, since this was a, a desolate place. Jesus wasn't a trickster. He wasn't a David Blaine. The point was that they started off with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And the people had nothing to eat on them. And Jesus had nothing to give them to start with. That's why he told his disciples, feed the crowd. So what is going on here? Well, this feast was nothing less than a miracle. He is revealing who he is as their shepherd and their provider. He just created something out of nothing. He created the bread and fish on the spot with his own hands. This is the creator who brings something that wasn't there before into existence out of nothing. He just performed the impossible. And this same creator who did the same thing at the beginning of creation, bringing something out of nothing, took on flesh And as their shepherd, he is showing that he is prepared to lay down his life for his sheep and do the impossible. He is prepared to create a people who were not his people before and make them his people. He was prepared to bring life Into existence where there was no life. That's a lot, but that's what you get out of this passage. This miraculous act of creating bread and fish out of nothing does two things for us. First, it points us to the past, and it also points us to the future. It points us to the past. It has been seen in some sense before, like when Elijah told the widow of Zarephath to bring him a morsel of bread. And she responded that she only had a handful of flour and a little oil left in her jug. And that was for her and her son as their last meal before they die of starvation. But Elijah told her to have no fear and to do as he said and promised in the name of the Lord that the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Also, it is like when Elisha was performing a string of miracles comparable to Jesus. He asked his servant to give 100 of the sons of the prophets 20 loaves of bread and grain to eat during a famine. But the servant responded, How can I set this before a hundred men? Elisha responded, Give it to them, for thus says the Lord, and there will be some left over. And that is what happened. 
Now this is on a much grander scale. Because Jesus and his disciples only had five loaves of bread, two fish for 5,000 people. Not 20 loaves for 100. And he created the elements right there on the spot. He didn't send them out to go get it. He created it right there and distributed it. This was to show that this prophet is greater than Elijah and greater than Elisha. Also, the story we remember most is when the Lord told Moses that he would rain bread from heaven for Israel. Get this while they were in the wilderness during the Exodus, for they had nothing to eat. The next day in John's account of this feeding, Jesus reveals himself as God, the creator, the provider, the one who reigned bread from heaven for Israel in the wilderness by saying, I am. That is the forbidden name of God. It is the forbidden name of God. He says, I am the bread of life. And this is where I want to go to next. Because this feast that he shares with common sinners also points to the future. First, notice the wording when he used, used when Jesus says that he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. This is the same formula used for the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is in a sense a feast, though a solemn feast, remembering the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and, the, and spiritually feeding on Him. Some say this is the first time that Jesus public, publicly institutes the Lord's Supper. Some disagree and say it has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. So you're probably asking, what do you think, Pastor? What do you think? Does this have to do with the Lord's Supper or not? My answer is yes and no. It is the Lord's Supper in seed form, just like the gospel is in seed form. Or better, it's a stump at this point with a little stem forming a bud. The disciples and the crowd didn't know all the details about the gospel and how he would go to the cross and die. Yet the gospel was there. Why? Because Jesus was there. Same with the Lord's Supper. He doesn't give the words of institution. The wine is not there. But Jesus is there. Wherever Jesus was, there was the gospel. And we can say, there was the Lord's Supper. For he said, I am the bread of life. And if anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. It is embodied in Jesus. His entire life and his ministry points forward to what is to come. This occasion was a foretaste of what is to come in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of what is to come in the marriage supper or wedding feast of the Lamb. 
prepared for his bride, the church, when he returns. When we think of this season that we're in, many Christians have called it Advent season. Because they are awaiting, they're they're following a calendar, and they're awaiting the celebration of the birth of Christ. But we are in a perpetual Advent season, aren't we, in this world? We are always in Advent. We are always anticipating a feast that is coming. We are anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. And what happened here in his feeding of the 5,000 is pointing forward to this feast that is to come that he will prepare for all those whom he has called his own. And Jesus feeds the people in the wilderness that he created out of nothing on their way to a new exodus led by him. So the question is, how should we apply this text to ourselves today? First notice, this entire passage is about the shepherd and his compassion for his sheep. This is about his compassion for you. For he knows where you are at this moment. He knows where you are in your suffering. He knows where you are even in your sin. He knows where you are, whether or not you are on the road to repent or not. He knows where you are and he looks and has compassion from his throne. He has not left us alone. By his spirit, he shows compassion and he feeds us. Also notice, he tried to instill this in his disciples when he told them to feed the sheep. His disciples are to learn from him. And what did he teach his disciples? What did he teach them at this point in time? He taught them how they are to rely upon him for every need. They are to rely upon him in everything. That's why Jesus would later say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you receiving his teaching? Are you receiving that he is your provider and you can do nothing without him? He is our true shepherd, the one who leads his sheep and his sheep hear his voice. There are many voices today And many of them claim to be Christians in order to get our undivided attention. They share the same opinions as we do. They could be celebrities, politicians, or other leaders claiming to be Christians. Or pastors who have been led astray from the gospel. They could be people in church who are not living according to their profession. There are all these voices trying to influence us. But the question is, are we listening to Jesus' teaching? 
And when we hear someone openly contradict Jesus, whom shall we listen to? Who is our shepherd and our provider? All of these leaders will pass away, including myself. Who is our shepherd and our provider? Secondly, if you receive his teaching and allow him to shepherd you first so that you may discern true Christianity from false, is there compassion in your hearts for the lost or for people in general? It doesn't matter who. Just as Paul calls the Galatians to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, that is the church, Are we seeking to do good to all around us? And I'm not talking about um, what some have coined cultural transformation. And I'm not saying that we are to necessarily open up a soup kitchen. Jesus doesn't divide his teaching from feeding the sheep. But what are the needs that have been brought to us? How is the church called to meet those needs? Or how will I, as a Christian, meet someone else's need? And the question is, how can we meet those needs? If we can't, are we relying upon the Lord through prayer and supplication as He is our great provider? Now there is a sense that the church takes priority over the world. And we are put in the world to call the world into the church so that they can get to know their providers so that they can get to know their most important need and that is their need of this shepherd so that they submit to his teaching and learn from him the way of salvation. But we are not to totally separate the spiritual from the physical needs of our people. I've said this before, the role of pastors and elders are mainly and primarily spiritual but those of the physical are given to the deacons. But both of these attributes should be embodied in every Christian as well as we seek to follow the Savior. The author of Hebrews says to all the church, by this time you ought to be teachers. He says it to everyone. He doesn't just say it to the elders. He says by this time. You ought to be teachers. And James says how faith without works is dead. Speaking of works of mercy. As Jesus would later confirm. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do we know what this means personally? Do we see this coming to fruition. Even in seed form. In our own individual lives. The compassion of our Savior that was shown to us. Is that coming out? When we look at the world and all of its problems, all of its sins, do we look with compassion or do we look with disdain, hatred, and pride? Oh, they're just getting it all wrong. Or is it compassion for the lost? 
Is that what is coming from us? Because compassion is one of the first signs that the Savior has met with you and saved you. Thirdly, one thing to notice about this text is that there is no response. That there is no response from the people to what Jesus had done, not even from his own disciples. The only response we have is found in John when they try to make him their worldly king like Israel did with Saul. Their response was worldly. This shepherd just displayed his almighty creative power before their very eyes. And yet their response was of this world. Today people want Jesus to fit in their worldly categories. As if he is coming back to run for president of the United States. No, he's coming to wipe everything out. When he returns, all of this will be gone. Our response these days to the gospel has been very worldly. We expect Jesus to meet our expectations. And when he doesn't fulfill our expectations, much like the response to Moses in the wilderness after they saw all that the Lord had done for them, they were ungrateful. God was with them in the wilderness and he provided for them. And he provides for you and me. Sometimes in ways we can't even explain how. What will be our response? If you're in a place of need, look to him. If you have received much from him, praise him. For from this point in our passage, he will later extend his compassion further as he becomes the lowly shepherd who trades places with his sheep and becomes a lamb before the shearers. He will later go to the cross for our sins and provide salvation from the wrath that we deserve. He provides all things, including new life. And through his death, he provides life. How do we respond to such good news? Amen. Let us pray.